grace, to be grace, is pure grace. Please turn in your Bible with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Grace, to be grace, is pure grace. Back at the time of the Reformation, the issue was not the necessity of Christ, the necessity of the Scripture, the necessity of faith. Rome, on the one side, believed that Scripture was necessary, that Scripture showed us the truth of God. But it wasn't enough. You also need the Rome magisterium. You need the popes, you need the cardinals, you need the declarations of the pope and in an infallible way to understand the truth of the scripture. And regarding faith, faith was certainly necessary but not enough. You also have to merit salvation by good works. Faith and works in cooperation brought about justification as a process. And when God saw that you had achieved the level of righteousness necessary to be declared just, right before him, only then would he declare you right before him. The message of the gospel was very, very different. The fact is, we have no righteousness of our own, and while we are still sinners, we call upon the name of the Lord and are justified by the grace of Christ alone. The necessity versus the sufficiency. So the reformers would say, yeah, the Bible's necessary, but it's also sufficient. Yes, grace is necessary, but it's also sufficient. Faith is necessary, but it's also sufficient. In his book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, Dr. R.C. Sproul explains that important distinction between that which is necessary and that which is sufficient. He writes these words, A necessary condition is a condition that must be present for a desired result to happen. Without it, the result would not be forthcoming. For example, oxygen is a necessary condition for fire. However, the mere presence of oxygen is not enough to guarantee that a fire will occur. That's fortunate for us since the world would be in flames if oxygen automatically produced fire. Oxygen is therefore necessary for fire, but in itself is not sufficient for a fire to ignite. End of quote. It's been repeatedly said, the issue at the Reformation has never been merely the necessity of grace, but the sufficiency of grace. The Bible affirms that grace actually saves Grace alone means this, grace at the start, grace all the way to the end, grace in the middle, grace without fail, grace without mixture, grace without addition, grace that allows no boasting, grace that precludes all glorying but in the Lord. To really see this truth, let's look at a certain verse in Romans 11. And verse 6, and in explaining the way grace operates, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Romans 11, verse 6, and ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. But if it is by grace, 
it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Now that's part of a passage, but I don't believe in isolating this verse. We're taking something to mean something other than what it's saying. He's presenting the message of grace and makes this declarative statement that if grace and works are mixed, you no longer have grace. Grace, to be grace, is pure grace. Let's read it again. But if, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Here we get into the concepts of sola fide and sola gratia. Sola fide means faith alone. Sola gratia means grace alone. And it's important that though those truths are distinguished, they really cannot be properly understood apart from seeing how they're inseparably linked. I was reading this just today and I thought it would be so helpful for us if I uh, brought it to this teaching. Again, to quote Dr. R.C. Sproul from his book, Willing to Believe, you'll find this on pages 24 through 26. He writes this, Evangelicals are so called because of their commitment to the biblical and historical doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because the reformers saw sola fide as central and essential to the biblical gospel, the term evangelical was applied to them. Modern evangelicals in great numbers embrace the sola fide of the Reformation, but have jettisoned the sola gratia that undergirded it. And then... Dr. Sproul goes on to quote uh, J.I. Packer and Johnston, and actually I have the book right here uh, where he's quoting from. It's a translation of Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. Luther referred to this work as his most important work. And so translated from the German into English, J.I. Packer and O.R. Johnston write these words. Let me quote them. Justification by faith only is a truth that needs interpretation. The principle of sola fide is not rightly understood till it is seen as anchored in the broader principle of sola gratia. What is the source and status status of faith? Is it the God-given means whereby the God-given justification is received or... Is it a condition of justification which is left to man to fulfill? Is it a part of God's gift of salvation or is it man's own contribution to salvation? Is our salvation wholly of God? W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly of God. Or does it ultimately depend on something that we do for ourselves? Those who say the latter, as the Arminians later did, thereby deny man's utter helplessness in sin and affirm that a form of semi-Pelagianism is true after all. It is no wonder then that later Reformed theology condemned Arminianism as being in principle a return to Rome because 
in effect, it turned faith into a meritorious work and a betrayal of the Reformation because it denied the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, which was the deepest religious and theological principle of the reformer's thought. Arminianism was indeed, in reformed eyes, a renunciation of New Testament Christianity in favor of New Testament Judaism. For to rely on oneself for faith is no different in principle for, from relying on oneself for works. And to the one and the one is as unchristian and anti-Christian as the other. In the light of what Luther says to Erasmus, there is no doubt that he would have endorsed this judgment. Let me reread that important sentence I just read. To rely on oneself for faith is no different in principle from relying on oneself for works. And the one is as unchristian and anti-Christian as the other. Now, that was the quote of Packer and Johnston. This is now, uh, as I'm reading, the reaction of Sproul, confessed in his book, Willing to Believe. I must confess that the first time I read this paragraph, I blinked. On the surface, it seems to be a severe indictment of Arminianism. Indeed, it could hardly be more severe than to speak of it as unchristian or anti-Christian. Does this mean that Packer and Johnston believe Arminians are not Christians? Not necessarily. Every Christian has errors of some sort in his thinking. Our theological views are fallible. Any distortion in our thought, any deviation from pure biblical categories may be loosely deemed unchristian or anti-Christian. The fact that our thought contains unchristian elements does not demand the inference that we are therefore not Christians at all. I agree with Packer and Johnston that Arminianism contains unchristian elements in it and that their view of the relationship between faith and regeneration is fundamentally unchristian. Is this error so egregious that it is fatal to salvation? People often ask if I believe Arminians are Christians. I usually answer, yes, barely. They are Christians by what we call a felicitous or felicitous inconsistency. What is this inconsistency? Arminians affirm the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They agree that we have no meritorious works that count toward our justification, that our justification rests solely on the righteousness and merit of Christ, that sola fide means justification is by Christ alone, and that we must trust not in our own works, but in Christ's works for our salvation. In all this, they differ from Rome on crucial points. Packer and Johnston note that later Reformed theology, however, condemned Arminianism as a betrayal of the Reformation and in principle as a return to Rome. They point out that Arminianism, in effect, turned faith into a meritorious work. 
we notice that this charge is qualified by the words in effect. In effect. Usually Arminians, and I'm continuing to quote Sproul, usually Arminians deny that their faith is a meritorious work. If they were to insist that faith is a meritorious work, they would be explicitly denying justification by faith alone. The Arminian acknowledges that faith is something a person does. It is a work, though not a meritorious one. Is it a good work? Certainly, it's not a bad work. It is good for a person to trust in Christ and in Christ alone for his or her salvation. Since God commands us to trust in Christ, when we do so, we are obeying this command. But all the Christians agree that faith is something we do. God does not do the believing for us. We also agree that our justification is by faith insofar as faith is the instrumental cause of our justification. All the Arminian wants and intends to assert is that man has the ability to exercise the instrumental cause of faith without first being regenerated. This position clearly negates sola gratia, but not necessarily sola fide. Then, why say that Arminianism, in effect, makes faith a meritorious work? Because the good response people make to the gospel becomes the ultimate determining factor in salvation. I often ask my Armenian friends why they are Christians and other people are not. They say it is because they believe in Christ while others do not. Then I inquire why they believe and others do not. Is it because you are more righteous than the person who abides in unbelief? They are quick to say no. Is it because you are more intelligent? Again, the reply is negative. They say that God is gracious enough to offer salvation to all, all who believe, and that one cannot be saved without that grace. But this grace is cooperative grace. Man, in his fallen state, must reach out and grasp this grace by an act of the will, which is free to accept or reject this grace. Some exercise the will rightly or righteously, while others do not. When pressed on this point, the Arminian finds it difficult to escape the conclusion that ultimately his salvation rests on some righteous act of the will he has performed. He has, in effect, merited the merit of Christ, which differs only slightly from the view of Rome. End of quote. Well, that was a lengthy quote, but I hope you're able to follow that and realize these are big issues. And we need to be very, very clear on the gospel. And the gospel is not God has done 99% of the task in salvation, but has left the 1% to you. You must do the meritorious thing of saying yes to the office of salvation. No, 
understanding what faith is. It's the instrument of justification, but that, that faith is also God's gift to his elect people undermines the, eri- the, the idea of any merit being given to us or we put merit on the table, such as our faith, and that's the ultimate deciding factor. As we go to Romans chapter 8 for a moment, I want us to see something that I believe will just be very self-evident as we, we, we read it. And we must recognize that there are no chapter divisions in the original text. There was not Paul writing with his quill, chapter 8. And then after writing uh, certain words, he writes chapter 9. These are man's designations, which are helpful. They help, help us find particular chapters and verses, but it was not part of the original. And in the original, he was writing one letter to the Romans here. And in Romans 8 verse 1, the banner headline is, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the end of this chapter, chapter 8 verse 35 and 39, the banner headline would be, there's no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul has made it very clear through the golden chain of redemption, Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30, that... There are a people that God is saving. He foreknew them. He predestined them. He called them. He justified them. And he glorified them. And we are in time, not yet at the point of glorification as we stand on planet Earth. And yet we can say we're justified because we've had faith in Jesus. The believer is justified before God. And he can look forward and backward in that chain and realize that If I'm here, if I can identify myself as one of those he has justified, then I can go forward and backward in this five-chain link and see that I'm justified because he called me, and I'm called because he predestined me, and I'm predestined because he foreknew or foreloved me. And I can always walk the other way and say, well, I know I'm justified and I will be glorified because no one falls through the cracks. The Bible here doesn't say some of those he predestined, he called, and some of those he called, he justified, and some of those he justified, he glorified. No, no one falls through the cracks before uh, the the throne of God. We're foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and so certain is it that the justified will be glorified, all of them, that Paul writes of of it in the past tense. He has glorified. We're walking out in time what God has worked out in eternity. And that's a very brief summary. You know I could go for hours and would love to again over the golden chain of redemption. Five links in a golden chain that spans from eternity past into eternity future and God forges all those links in the chain. These are not things that that, that man does. These are all acts of God. God foreknows, predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies. Now, what Paul then does in verse 31 is to write of the reaction. And the right reaction we should have to this is what he writes. What then shall we say to these things? Let me just stop there for a moment. Some people, they may not like to 
be pressed on this, but their reaction would be, well, if that's all true, keep it quiet, because this is controversial. <laughs> but that's not the right reaction. The right reaction is to say, well, when we read of this, what shall we say in response? Here's the right response. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, God wants the Christians to know this. That's why he's revealed it. He didn't reveal this to us to cause fighting in the body of Christ. He, he, he revealed it so we would know it and that preachers would preach it and that teachers would teach it and that Christians would believe it. And to understand if God is for us and we recognize the us are his elect people, no matter what we go through in life, no matter what we go through, we know verse 28 applies. To those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. And nothing can successfully be against us because God is for us. Who's the us? It's his elect people. Whom he foreknew, predestined, called, justified and glorified. And the right reaction to this truth is to say, Oh, thank you God, you're for me. It doesn't matter who's against me. And here's then the basis for that, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, that's God the Father, not sparing his own son, but gave him up for us all, who's the us, the elect, how will he not also with him graciously give us, the elect, all things? What are the all things here? It's not talking about airplanes and uh, having the house on the hill and earthly prosperity. That's not what's in view. The all things are all things necessary to conform us to the image of Christ, which is the goal of predestination. He's going to give us everything we need to get to glorification. And to make sure we're tracking with Paul, he's talking about God's elect people outlined in verses 29 and 30. He then writes this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's not just bringing up the subject of election in verse 33. The whole uh, passage reeks of it. And so he's staying on course. He's staying with the, with the program. He's staying with the message he's proclaiming. And in that God is graciously going to give us everything necessary to get us to glorification, the us being God's elect, he said, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's a question. And the answer is, it's God who justifies. Here, here's the issue. God's in the courtroom, the devil's excluded, and God in the courtroom justifies all God's elect because they come to faith. Jesus said it in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All the Father gives me are the elect people of God, and they will come. Why? Because God gives them faith. And it is God who justifies. So it doesn't matter what the devil is doing outside the court with his petition saying, you must condemn, you must condemn, you must condemn. No, God justifies, end of statement, court over, you are dismissed. It's God's court. And God justifies. The next question that's raised, verse 34, who is to condemn? Well, there's a lot out there who would try to condemn but they're not successful in condemning Christians. 
How do we know that? Well, Romans 8 is in the same chapter. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. His present day ministry, after his triumphal death, burial and resurrection, and now his session at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people, this exact same people, is going on present day, and Jesus is praying for us who indeed is interceding for us. Who's the us? It's not a new us, it's the same us, the elect of God. Who shall separate us? Who's the us, the elect of God, from the love of Christ? Question. Well, the answer is nobody. And Paul is going to exhaust all possibilities, past, present, and future possibilities, to display the fact that nothing's going to separate the elect of God from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are big things to work through. Trouble, big trouble, that's tribulation. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword. You're getting killed. Facing that, will you be separated from the love of Christ? No, here we go. As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What's the answer to the question? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will any of these things separate us? The answer is, well, we, we sure hope so. No, it isn't. Well, most are going to be okay. No. Here's the answer. No. Can you read it in your Bible? No. In all these things, not in most of them. In all these things, we, who's the we, same group, the elect, are more than conquerors through him who loved us, same people. For I'm sure, I'm certain, I know it, that neither death nor life, anything you encounter in death, anything you encounter in life, that covers all the bases, ladies and gentlemen, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. All right, nothing now, nothing present, nothing in the future, Death, nor life, it's all covered. Nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Well, there's uh, scorpions at the house. No, no, that's not going to do it. Well, there's a lion in the street. No, that's not going to do it. Well, there's a volcano happening two minutes from your house. No, that's not going to do it. Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow, that's strong stuff. That's a strong, powerful, perfect Savior right there. That's God saving sinners by what he does. That's grace alone. Now, to understand what comes next, Paul, being a master teacher under the hand of God as an apostle, I'm sure he had taught this before, this truth of divine election, and he deals with, as he does elsewhere in the next chapter, of objections. He knows in teaching this, there's going to be objections. Well, um, that doesn't seem right. Is, is there injustice with God when he elects some and not all to salvation and What's the answer there? Well, he answers with a thunderous 
shout. God says, I reserve the right to have mercy on whom I have mercy. Next question, next objection, bring it on. Well, what's happening in chapter 9 verse 1 is, think about this. The Jews were the elect. They were the chosen people. That's what those words mean, if it has any meaning at all. Israel, the people of Israel, were the chosen people. And as you remember in human history, not all the Jews recognized and embraced Jesus as Messiah. Right? So what's with that? Has God's power, has his power been tarnished or diminished in some way so that though he wanted all the people of Israel to come, they all had this stubborn thing called free will and they messed up God's intention. It looks like they've been separated from the love of God, not only during the time of Jesus, but forever. Right? So how is this doctrine of election still true? Well, that's what Paul does in explaining the place of the Jews in God's system. And that's what he does in the opening verses of Romans 9. He's answering the objection, well, what about the Jews then? They were God's people, yet many of them will not be glorified. Many of them certainly are not justified. They haven't come to faith in Christ. What's going on, Paul? That's what Paul's dealing with. Notice the argument. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Talking about Jewish people. He's basically saying this. If it would mean their salvation and I being lost and cut off from Christ, I would gladly do it. I love my kinsmen according to the flesh. Of course, that's not possible, but that was his apostolic heart. And then he recounts the blessings given to Israel that was given to no other nation. They, that's the kinsmen according to the flesh, are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. Not anyone else. To them, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. That's a whole lot right there. Given to them, no one else. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's a verse that certainly highlights the deity of Christ. Christ came from the Jewish race. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all. Bless forever. Amen. And here's the answer. Nothing's failed. Nothing has failed to materialize regarding the promises of God. Here's why. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It hasn't failed. 
Well, it looks like it's failed. No, it hasn't failed. But it looks like it's failed. I understand that, but it hasn't failed. Why? Here's the reason. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's a huge statement. That's saying not everybody who can trace their ancestry to a Jewish mother or father, not all of them are true Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, belong to Israel. We can understand that. Not everybody with an American passport is a true American, right? They haven't got America in the heart. Mm -hmm. Not all who are Israel are Israel. So within the group of descendants of Israel, there's a lesser numbered group who are the true Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Let's make sure we're tracking with Paul because he's going to explain what I've just explained. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. They are of physical descent, but they're not true children of Abraham. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What do the Jews say? We're all the children of Abraham. God's view is, no, not everybody who are physical descendants of Abraham are true children of Abraham. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Notice this, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so, knowing that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac was the chosen one, not all the sons, not both the sons. Evidence A of this truth he's bringing out is Isaac, when there was Isaac and Ishmael. Only Isaac was the chosen one. So what does all this mean? Verse 8 actually answers that question. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election. Oh, is he just bringing up the subject of election? It's, it's, you know, from nowhere. No, the whole passage from Romans 8 into 9 is all about the electing purpose of God. So, God made a choice about sons. And these sons, if anyone was going to get in by descendancy alone, justification by descendancy alone, <laughs> it would be these two because... In the words of Dr. R.C. Sproul, they were womb mates. And God chose one rather than the other. Not because of their works. Works, their actions, was not the basis of the choice of God. And that is why we talk of unconditional election. Election not based on our actions. Our actions that God looked down the corridor of time and saw would take place. No, works... The works of man is not, decidedly not, the basis of God's choice. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. There it is. Works is not the basis of election, but because of him who calls, the powerful call of God. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I remember reading this text and thinking, well, my view is that God loves everyone in the exact same way. Do you know that's not provable scripturally? God has love for uh, some things and persons more than others. He loves his son more than he loves the pigeon on my roof. And God set his love on a people, the elect, the ones he chose. And not everyone is loved in the same way. Well, I'm not sure I like it. I understand, but Romans 9.13 will still be in your Bible when you go away frustrated and want to shout at something and throw a pillow at something. Come back. Romans 9.13 still says what it says. There was a different measure of love for one rather than the other. However you dice it, however many theological gymnastic tournaments you try to work out and get around what is in there. No, there was a different measure for Jacob in love than Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then Paul writes, I know what you're going to say. That sounds like injustice. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What's the answer? Well, not technically, if you think about it. No, by no means. Here's why. For he says to Moses, in so many words, I reserve the right to have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will, literally, I will mercy whom I will mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. All right, bring it together. What are you saying, Paul? I love the fact that he writes, so then. Here's the conclusion. Whenever you see a so then, it means on the basis of all that's been shared, all that's been revealed, here's the conclusion. So then, it. What's the it? The it is divine election. Election, God's choice, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's it. It's the mercy of God. What should surprise us is not that God hated Esau. What should throw us into a spin? What should cause us to say, why, 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 is the fact that God loved Jacob. There was nothing in Jacob that made God love Jacob. It was simply his sovereign choice. And God never tells us why he chooses what he chooses. God chose Israel when he could have waited for England. <laughs> he didn't. Could have waited for America. He didn't. He has the right as God who owns everything to say, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up. Oh, he raised Pharaoh up to be an evangelist, right? For the cause, the cause of God. No, he raised him up to do him in. He raised Pharaoh up. Pharaoh thought he was being raised up by the gods or he was being raised up by his own power. But God's 
thought on the matter, his declaration on the matter is, I raised Pharaoh up. Well, why'd you do that, God? He explains, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Not as a miracle evangelist, but raised up as the head of the greatest superpower to exist at that time, so that when God, with his little tribal people Israel, did them in in the Red Sea and crushed Egypt, it would be good for the name of God. My name, God says, might be proclaimed in all the earth. All people around will say, what a God there is who is the people's, people of Israel's God. He's just done in. He's just crushed Egypt and the armies of Egypt. That is some God. God says, the whole purpose, all those decades where you were being raised up, coming to the throne, ruling on the throne, I raised you up so that one day I would do you in so that my name gets known. Whew. That's the God we have to deal with. I'm not sure I like that. I understand you won't like this unless God gives you a new heart to love the true God. There isn't another one out there. This is the God of the Bible. This is the only God there is. And he says this, as stunning as these words are, and he follows it with another so then. Here's a conclusion. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. There you go. There you go. That, ladies and gentlemen, this, ladies and gentlemen, is the God of the Bible. He gets his will done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of grace. For grace, to be grace, it's pure grace. And only when we understand our natural inabilities rather than abilities, we have no ability to choose the God of the Bible till God gives us a new heart. That's grace and grace alone. Only then will, our, will we put our faith in Christ and be justified by faith and faith alone. And we say this in understanding the two components, sola gratia and sola fide, when we understand those, those amazing truths, only then can we say, soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Lord, reveal this amazing truth to your people that we might give you all the glory for our salvation, recognizing, as the book of Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.